Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the global specialist risk consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. Claudine, every time I cycle past St. Pancras Station in central London, I'm reminded of one thing and one thing only. And that's how badly I want to walk into that station get onto the Eurostar, read a book, and two and a half hours later, step off that train into Paris. Chuck, I hate to break it to you, but I'm actually doing that <gasps> in just a few days' time. No, let me carry your bags. <laughs> Lucky you. Enjoy. I I, I, I'm excited. I'll be in France a few weeks after the presidential election concluded, which saw the incumbent Emmanuel Macron triumphant. but. He has a lot on his plate and the formidable candidate who he was up against in the presidential election has not gone anywhere. Far-right politician Marine Le Pen is a force to be reckoned with and indeed will be standing herself in parliamentary elections that are coming up in June. So it's félicitations, Emmanuel Macron. But what did he really win? All of Western Europe, like much of the world, is facing rising energy prices, cost of living crunch, inflation. And I think that's really what's going to define the early stages of, of Macron's second term. I think there are concerns about the future, about what the impact of, of the broader economic situation in the region will be. And I think also questions about potential for significant regulatory change. That's Alexandra Kellard a senior analyst based in London who looks after the UK and parts of Europe. Sandra, tracking your coverage as we were for the last six months or so, I know that you were pretty consistently confident, actually, that Macron would be victorious in this election. A lot of people had a bit of a wobble when it came down to Macron and Marine Le Pen in the final round. But I know you were consistently, pretty confidently, as I say, of the view that he would win. Why was that? That's right. We're consistently confident that Macron would emerge the eventual winner. The big questions during the campaign were over who would his opponent be in the second round. And then once we'd had the first round over the, the vote share that, that Macron would get and really what the turnout would be. Because what the issue was, was many people in 2017 voted for Macron in a very positive way to, to keep out Le Pen. There was a sense by 2022 that you know he was the incumbent. It was much harder to try and win again. He's the first French president to be re-elected for 20 years. So we shouldn't underestimate the factors that were against him. But the reality was that the polling was never that close. We were always confident that enough people would still see Le Pen as toxic and would not have gone out to vote for her. I like what we're doing in this podcast because we did the same thing with the German elections, and that is that we had a look at them after the dust had settled. So let's just reflect briefly on the future of Marine Le Pen. She keeps getting closer and closer and closer. Does she have one more shot? Is that what political candidates do? Is it time for her to step aside? What does this mean about her movement? And was she really as close to the presidency as the numbers would have indicated? How much of that was people pinching their noses? How much of that was a protest vote? 
What's the future of whatever tendency in French voting that she represents? I don't think we should underestimate the increase in support for the far right parties in France, because you know we now have two far right parties that performed quite well. We'll look to see how they do in the parliamentary elections coming up. In terms of Marine Le Pen's personal future, prior to the presidential election, she said this would be her last shot and she, if she lost, she wouldn't give it another go. However, after the election, when she had performed obviously better than in 2017, she indicated that she would have another go. Now, obviously, a lot can happen in five years between presidential elections. We, I think, will see shifts in those far-right parties that possibly could move to to shift her out, essentially. So you've got another potential figure to kind of come center stage is her niece. You're keeping it in the family, isn't it? It's something going straight down the Le Pen family line. Wow. So that's one angle, although the two of them have quite difficult relations. We've now obviously got Eric Zemmour, who also ran in, in the presidential election on his own platform for the far right. So I think we're going to see a lot of movement in the the French far right in the coming years, but there's certainly, I would imagine, still going to be a, a factor in the 2027 elections. Sandra, how do you expect the Macron presidency to evolve and will it be different from his first term? It certainly will be different from his first term. This is his last term. Two terms is the maximum in France, so he can't run again in 2027. And in a way that will likely be liberating. The big question is over what happens in the parliamentary elections in June. We expect that Macron's party will have a reduced majority, but still a majority. That said, there's a a less likely, but still certainly credible scenario whereby they could lose their majority and that could make life very difficult domestically for Macron. The French parliamentary political system was essentially reworked to make it that you wouldn't have that difficult what's called cohabitation, whereby you have a a parliament that is not led by the same party as the president. But there is a real chance that that could happen. And if that would happen, that would make it very difficult for Macron to pass his agenda. Having said that, even if he does have a majority, it's not going to be that straightforward. Even within the last parliament, we saw a lot of movement out of and into his party. And I think we could see that. We could see some of the centre-right Republicans moving into his party, which might make life easier, but you then might lose people to the left. So it's, it's going to be very complicated. He's got very controversial plans. One of the things that really cost him in the election was his plan to reduce the retirement age. And that is something that's really going to come back onto the agenda. One of the big things that I associate with Macron's first term is the Gilets jaunes protests, which sort of seem a very long time ago now because they're pre-pandemic era. That was obviously associated with the backlash against a perceived very radical agenda that Macron had at the time. Presumably there's some unfinished business there, which is maybe what you were just hinting at. Yes. So the pension reforms are certainly something that have potential to reignite that anger. I think if we go back actually to the very start of the Gilets jaunes, the protests were actually triggered by rises in fuel costs. And I think this is definitely something that we need to watch. France, like all of Western Europe, like much of the world, is facing rising energy prices, cost of living crunch, inflation. And I think that's really what's going to define the early stages of, of Macron's second term. You know, the French love to protest. They will get out <laughs> onto the streets much more quickly than certainly we, the British, would. So I think we would expect 
you know, a, a period of, of quite intensive protest activity. You hinted, Zandra, at some global trends that are manifest in France as well. I'm going to use this as a chance to ask you two questions. The first one is, what are you telling companies about France right now? And how do they navigate both the urgent pressing needs of this year and another five years of a Macron presidency? Let's start with that. Okay, so operationally, I think there are our concerns for businesses. Obviously, the protests that we've just kind of alluded to, protest activity is definitely something that our clients working in France always want to talk about. And then you have those broader kind of societal issues about employment rights and always something that's a concern in France in terms of, of labor activism as well. So not just protests, but also strikes. More broadly, politically, you have to view Macron as a as a positive for for businesses. He is he is pro business. Things like this change to the, the pension reform is is part of that agenda, which is to make France more competitive, to reform the labor market. So the broad picture is a positive one for businesses there. But as we've mentioned, it's going to be complicated getting there. Mr. Macron is the president of a country in the G seven president of a country with a seat on the UN Security Council, running the second largest economy in the European Union. What sort of leadership role does he envision for himself? He's sometimes accused of visions of grandeur, and, and, and he loves those sort of Elysee Palace gold leaf backdrops. What sort of role is he envisioning for himself in the European Union and maybe even beyond that? So given how difficult things are going to be domestically, I think the international stage is very much where Macron's going to focus his attention. He already, I think, views himself as the, the leader of the EU. I mean, at the moment, he, he technically is one of them in that France holds the rotating presidency of the EU. But even before Angela Merkel stepped down last year, he was positioning himself for that role. He wants to push ahead and lead on, on the EU agenda. He's got very ambitious plans for reforming the EU internally. And then on the broader stage, yes, I think he does see himself potentially as a, as a leader shaping how Europe stands on the global stage. We started to see some hints at what that EU shaped by Macron's vision might look like in response to the Russia-Ukraine conflict, Sandra. Macron's taken quite a distinct position. What's he trying to achieve? So two things. One is that I, I genuinely think he believes that diplomacy and talking is still a way to try and find some form of resolution. But I also think that Macron is particularly reticent about any potential for Europe to become involved more directly in what's going on in Ukraine. And he will try to seek ways to avoid that. Having said that, one of the things he wants to do with the EU is to to bolster its its role in defence and security. He is a, a key advocate of an EU army. And I think that is something we're going to see him pushing for. I think the one of the interesting things going forward is, is kind of where the EU and NATO sit alongside each other, especially if we see NATO expanding. Do we need NATO and an EU army? Well, I think that is the big question. And a lot of the EU is opposed to having an EU army because they don't see the need for it. However, others would argue that because you essentially depend on the US's involvement in NATO, then it becomes a different question. The EU might be prepared to, to get involved in things that they wouldn't be able to convince the US to get involved in. 
That's right. And, and France's relationship with NATO, if I cast my mind back, which is always a dangerous thing to do, but if I think about my history is that France was never sort of a full-throated supporter of NATO. For a while, it was just a political member of NATO, not a military member of NATO. And I think now they're a full-fledged member, but I bet Macron would prefer an EU army. Yes, definitely. Partly because I think he thinks he would be able to have more influence over it. But yes, France has not always had a straightforward relationship with NATO. Sitting in a, in a UK post-Brexit, those words, European army, alongside concepts around the EU having its own foreign policy, strategic autonomy, they are highly emotive concepts. I've got a couple of questions, I suppose, Sandra. I'm partly thinking about what sort of mandate he has domestically to go out and pursue this kind of agenda on the international stage. And then also, what's his relationship with Schultz and Germany like? And, and, and how is he navigating through and, and negotiating with Germany on, on finding some kind of alignment on this vision for the, for the EU of the future? On the first question of the mandate domestically, one of the reasons why doing more internationally is appealing to Macron is because he's not constrained in the same way by parliament in his actions in the same way that he is on, on things like domestic reforms. So that's less of an issue there. In terms of the, the Franco-German relationship post-Merkel, it's still something that's in very early stages, obviously. I think what's clear is that Macron and Schultz have very different personalities and, and they're not yet, and even though that was also obviously true of Macron and Merkel, we're not yet seeing the relationship developing between Macron and Schultz that we had with Macron and Merkel, which towards the end was certainly a very warm relationship and they worked well together. So I think time will tell how that will develop. And also, I mean, just domestically in terms of where Germany is sitting in terms of its kind of international policy, there's a lot going on internally in Germany, which means that they can't necessarily engage with EU partners like France in, in the same way that they might hope. We'll return to the discussion in just a moment. But if you'd like to find out more about how control risk can help your organization understand the business implications of national and geopolitical issues, follow the link in the podcast notes. Now, back to the discussion. Sandra, how difficult will this autumn be in France? What's going to happen with inflation? What's happening with food prices? What's happening with energy? What sort of political season awaits Emmanuel Macron? Potentially a very dark one. And the same is true for many European leaders looking at the, the six months ahead. Big question is, can the EU do anything kind of regionally to, to prevent some of the worst impacts of inflation and, and the energy crisis? If the EU is simultaneously restricting the energy that's bringing in from Russia, struggling to replace that because it takes time to find alternative sources, to build renewables into the mix. Potentially the summer will be okay because energy demand is a lot less, but going into the winter where demand is higher and it seems unlikely that there will be a full resolution of this price crunch and, and supply crunch, potentially that does bring a lot of people out onto the streets. It puts a lot of pressure on the government to do something and it essentially just eclipses everything else if people can't afford to heat their homes. He's lucky that the elections were held when they were, wasn't he? Almost certainly, yes. That's something that we heard from clients on a recent road trip, Claudine, isn't it? That there was a certain sigh of relief 
that the French elections were held when they yes, were. Yes, that's right. Yeah. We had we had clients talking to us at the end of last year um, about what 2022 might bring. And the French presidential election was very high up on, on people's lists of concerns. It's it's passed, big size of relief all round. But actually, keep an eye on it because there's there's trouble ahead. And Sandra, we haven't really delved into the parliamentary elections. Might we see a strong performance by parties on the extreme right in those elections? And what kind of impact will they have on Macron's ability to implement his policy agenda? It sounds like a limited impact on the foreign policy front, but on the domestic front, potentially significant. Give, give us a, a sort of taster of what to look out for in the parliamentary elections. Interestingly, the the far right is probably less of a concern for Macron in the parliamentary elections than the left is. And the reason for that is that the far right is divided by two parties that are highly unlikely to work together before or after the elections. The bigger concern for Macron probably comes from the left. The left in, in recent years in France has fragmented significantly, but in recent weeks we've seen them come together to form a bloc which has everything from the far left to the traditional centre left. And so if they can form a bloc that has, even if not a majority, but a, a significant chunk of the parliamentary seat, then they could cause real problems. And then you would probably see Macron having to sort of shift his agenda a bit more to the left than he would probably want to. Sandra, in addition to your specific expertise on France, you spend a lot of time thinking about the European Union and Europe in general. During the run-up to these elections, how much were you as an individual, as a political risk analyst, concerned more broadly about the implications of the French elections for democracy versus autocracy? What are you taking away from what happened in the elections just now? So I think the, the elections obviously raise concerns about the direction of democracy. There, there was a sense that a huge part of the French electorate was angry or just fed up with politics and politicians. And I think one of the biggest concerns is, you know, looking five years down the line, as we've said, Macron can't run again. His party is essentially based around him. As we've said, the centre right and centre left have struggled to reposition themselves in recent years. There are big questions about what the longer term future of democracy in France is. Elsewhere in the EU, this is something that we talk about sort of every few years. We talk about the rise of the far right or, or of populist parties. In Italy, we talked a lot when we had the, the Five Star Movement that defied putting into any box, but certainly were populist, but have now moved to the centre. I think the decline of European democracy has been and can, can be overstated, but I also think that we see a challenging time ahead for traditional centre parties. Although Le Pen lost, she captured a significant share of the vote. And she also did that partly, as I understand, by positioning herself very effectively as perhaps more moderate than her real policy agenda would be. And of course, that's something we're seeing playing out a lot in that, that, that ability to sort of package a message in a way that makes candidates appealing to a more mainstream audience than they would otherwise. I wonder how much that will be a legacy of this election that will play out elsewhere. Yeah, you make a good point there. I mean, she gained the share 
of votes that she gained in part by pretending that she was somebody that she's not, that it was that move away from from right wing extremism that that and 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 being less Le Pen than 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 typical and certainly than the heritage that the family lineage represents. I guess the reason why I asked Zandra that question is that so many elections now are not just about who wins a local race. It's either about the conduct of the elections themselves or their broader message about the future of governance. And I know that that weighed very heavily over the French elections. I know that it, it, it comes up periodically in Europe. There's a part of me that's questioning, you know, are we going to ask this question about every single election as it approaches? And I was wondering how nervous Sandra was. Sandra's never nervous. Let's, let's go with that. No, uh, <laughs> there, there are definitely concerns about how robust engagement is with the political system and how governments and traditional parties go about engaging voters and demonstrating that they are, are working for them. Voters like to, to kind of give incumbents a bit of a, a, a knock. Kick. Yeah, a kick, exactly. We've also seen it recently in the UK local elections. It's, it's not unusual for, for voters to feel like change is not happening quickly enough and that they just want to, to push back and, and show that they're annoyed about that. That doesn't necessarily make me nervous, but it, it raises questions about what political parties can do to boost engagement. Sandra, I'm interested in getting your sense of the mood within French companies at the moment, given the, the election, but also in the sort of general context of what's going on more broadly in the economy and the geopolitical environment. So we haven't really talked very much about COVID today. And I think that is still, though, one of the, the biggest kind of influences of, of business sentiment. Businesses are, are having to, to readjust to, to where we are now, which is sort of getting back to normal, but not completely, particularly in terms of things like business travel. So talking to French companies, that is one of their key priorities. But I think there are concerns about the future, about what the impact of of the broader economic situation in the region will be. And I think also questions about potential for significant regulatory change. In France specifically, I think the, the hope is that most regulatory change brought in by Macron's government would be positive for them. The broader question, to look more at my EU remit, is that you know the EU is on a kind of legislative push in a lot of areas. You know, it, it is targeting digital technology companies. It is increasing requirements for companies to do things like audit their supply chains and, and issues like social and governance and human rights. Then you've got the push to, to tackle climate change, which has been slightly on the back burner in the past couple of years. But for the EU and also for Macron's government, it is a key feature of the, the coming years. And what will that mean for how businesses have to essentially radically change how they work? So that's really interesting, Sandra. So we have a pro-business president and that's a good thing. But at the same time, he's not going to change a direction of travel more generally on the regulatory front, which means that companies are likely to be facing more complexity a more burdensome regulatory environment on a whole range of levels. I was very strangely comforted to hear Zandra talk about compliance and supply chain. 
because as we sit here discussing the future of democracy, and as we sit here discussing sort of regional conflicts with global implications, we're back to the baguette jambon fromage of business in France. And that was my poor attempt at sort of saying, you know, the bread and butter, the meat and potatoes, the, the sort of standard meal of the business agenda. Good luck to French companies who are trying to juggle all of this, who were worried about their supply chains, who were worried about compliance, and then who also have to think about how they and the political culture in France are going to deal with the coming six to 12 months. Sandra, it's been great having your insight. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Sandra, thank you. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And goodbye from me.